Welcome to the MacFab Engineering Podcast. We're your hosts, Parker Dillman. And Stephen Craig. This is episode 290. So we had some very interesting discussion in the uh, Slack channel today. And uh, this was a question inspired by Tim Yeager. I think that's yeah. how you pronounce yeah. that? Tim Yeager. Uh, uh, by uh, the way, this is a, totally an endorsement for joining our Slack channel because if you come and talk about cool stuff, then we will probably talk about it on the podcast. Yeah. So, so Tim asked about, um, they're, they're developing a new product and they were talking about, um, I guess their microcontroller. Um, the fact that he can, they could buy a microcontroller and they're picking like between packages. Yeah. He, they have options. They have options. What, what's your, what, what's the part number, Tim? What's the, yeah, part what's number? the family? What, who makes this magical thing? <laughs> uh, in stock ink. <laughs> So anyway, so Tim was asking this package of, I'm going to assume microcontroller. Uh, this microcontroller is either in a BGA or a QFP package. And they were, he was wondering about basically what, what the pick in terms of like pricing and reliability and all this other stuff. Well, with, with the caveat that the BGA was actually slightly cheaper than the QFP. Yeah, the raw component cost, the BGA is less expensive, which makes sense. It's, it would be a easier package to manufacture on from an IC side. Um, and it's a 48-pin QFP versus a 56-pin BGA. Mm -hmm. I'm going to guess the extra pins are probably grounds and powers and that kind of stuff. Probably, yeah. yeah. Probably, probably not a bunch of extra functionality pins. No. Um, so I guess we'll talk about this question because I, I thought it was really interesting, um, to think about of when you actually have options, what's the best way to go about with your product? Um, for me, I'm just going to come right out and I'm just going to say, go with leaded packages if you can, uh, compared your to manufacturer will like you, your manufacturer, well, not just your manufacturer will like you, but your product's going to be cheaper to manufacture. Uh, and that kind of stuff, but why? Why would you? Why should you pick the QFP over the BGA, even though the BGA is less expensive for the part components cost? I mean, there's a lot of factors behind that, so I guess we'll a lot touch of factors. Yeah. So the first one, escaping the package. I was hoping to have like an escape from LA or escape from New York joke, but I I never got down to writing one. Um, <laughs> So escaping the package. So what what does that mean, Stephen? Okay, so if you got um, if you got a surface mount part that has pads underneath it, like a BGA, then to get traces out from underneath the BGA, that's called escaping. Uh, so when it comes to actually routing this part on a board to get the the, the traces from the internal balls on a BGA, um, can be uh, significantly difficult. Now, uh, with something like a 56-pin BGA, that's kind of a, an interesting number. I'm assuming it's a rectangular BGA. That's like a 7 by 8 pin style. So what that means is there's multiple rows of balls in this BGA. So to access the signals that are on some of the internal balls of the BGA uh, can be tricky and can raise the assembly cost just because you're picking one of these BGA styles. Mm -hmm. So with something like a QFP, all the pins are on the side or the legs of the component. Uh, so typically that's four sides of the component. So escaping it as in getting uh, traces out, out from the part is considerably easier than a BGA. And most of the time cheaper. It's already technically done for you it's already escaped right it's yeah. already escaped yeah so on, on the bgas you actually even wrote an article yeah i actually wrote a pair of art articles it's a yeah there's a there's two uh, it's a series of two articles that that talk about how to escape a bga and then some of the um difficulties behind that and some of the considerations uh and the impacts on your on your pcb so i i think that's still on the macrofab blog um in and fact, for, if you go to Google and you type in escaping BGAs, I think that it shows up. Yes. Uh, so actually, so here's one of the rules of thumb when it comes to BGA packages. If you, if you count the number of rows or the number of columns of uh, 
pads in a BGA, whichever one is smaller. Most of the time, BGAs are squares, uh, so your your rows and your columns are going to be the same. But in this case, like I said, I think it's a rectangle. So pick whichever one is smaller. For every pair of rows or columns, that adds a layer uh, on your PCB. So if you have four rows uh, and columns, that you could get away with a two-layer PCB. But as soon as you you're getting bigger than that, uh, you need you need more than that. And most BGAs, you're never going to get away with a two-layer PCB unless it's one of those little, like, four-banger guys, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and those are only require one layer to get to escape. Uh, so BGAs re- require that your layer stack up in your PCB increases dramatically as soon as you uh, add more pins to your BGA. Now, that's assuming you need to access all the pins on a BGA. Yeah, yeah. Because it might be that most of the inners are grounds or powers and you can easily access those with just a little little uh trace off with a via down you know well okay so there's difficulty with that because if you if you think of a bga one of the easiest ways to to look at a bga is just consider four adjacent balls uh and then do the geometry in between those balls and consider what's your largest via you can create with your largest uh annular ring around it uh, that fits within your manufacturer's uh, available tolerance and whatever you're willing to pay for. As soon as the pitch of the balls, in, in other words, the, um, uh, the distance in between balls, uh, starts to shrink, which in BGAs that's sort of the trend as things get smaller and smaller, your, your cost starts to skyrocket because your, your vias get way smaller which uh, which necessitates that your annular rings get smaller, which uh, starts to become much more difficult to manufacture the actual PCB. Uh, and then you have to start getting into more, uh, I guess, wild manufacturing processes like VIA and pad and things like that when the pad is already four thousandths of an inch, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, basically your, your, your PCB tolerances start to go up uh, compared to the QFN, uh, QFP, I mean. It also depends on the QFN or or QFP as well, because you start getting basically once you get below like half a millimeter pitch, you start having to bump up your tolerances as well to make sure, you know, are you getting enough? If you can, are you getting solder dam on your silk on your on your uh, solder mask? Or if you can't get that, you know, are you are your pads basically the width of the of the of the J Lee? You know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Well, okay. So, so really depends. with the BGA, you you kind of get hit in two ways. Whereas with the QFP, you only get hit once. And what I mean by a hit is like your your board cost increases. So yeah. with the QFP, as the pitch decreases, you need to get tighter tolerances on your on your PCB, and that usually comes with um, added cost. And and at Macrofab, I believe you guys call that extended, right? Yeah, it's just uh, manufacturing. extended manufacturing. Yeah. And and what that typically means is just. Uh, your trace size and your space width, yeah, right, can get closer. Whereas with a BGA, most of the time you already have to be at your extended manufacturing for your trace size, and but then you also have to get beyond that uh, smaller vias. So you pay uh, two times over for that. It's it's not two x. It's just you you pay for yeah, both of those extra manufacturing. Um, and if you go and you go into blind buried vias. Uh, for small volume stuff, that's usually just like a blanket adder that the the PCB fabricator will add on. But if you're in production, you basically pay per blind buried via. Mm-hmm. Is how that works out. Um, all right, so that's about the PCBA level. I I think that's about all I can think about on the PCBA, not PCBA, uh, PCB level, like the actual printed circuit board. You'd have to worry about. Yeah, I mean, there's uh, so. Yeah, it, this is fairly standard now, but your surface finish, yeah, you, you yeah. pretty much have to get a, a flat surface finish. Yeah. Uh, so Enig and uh, what OSP uh, start to become, but but at the same time, those are kind of standard, so they don't necessarily add much cost, but they do guarantee that you need something flat like that. Correct, correct. Yeah, I can't think of anything else on the PCBA that, or P, I keep saying PCBA, on the PCB that's different. Um, but on, let's say, the assembly side or post-assembly inspection costs, mm-hmm. um, because with leaded packages like a QFP, you can easily just AOI the whole board 
and most of, most PCBA manufacturers AOI everything. Hell, half the time you can do it with the naked eye. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, like obviously, like in a production sense, you wouldn't do that. But if there was an issue, you could almost easily see it just Correct. right away. Whereas a BGA pretty much requires X-ray to see anything that's really wrong with it. They make like kind of like under scope, or not under scope, like a ninety degree bend, like prisms that you can like. It's like a it's like a, a reverse periscope. You're yeah, looking down, yeah. not up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But you can only really see like maybe the first two rows of the balls. Yeah, if you're PGA, lucky. If you're lucky. Um, so yeah, you really need uh, to get really high um, uh, quality on your BGAs. You pretty much need X-ray uh, inspection, which you- adds cost. So uh, let's 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 take a let's take a side note real quick and uh, talk about the issues that come up with what what kind of issues do you see with manufacturing in BGAs? Like, what is a problem with a BGA? The big one I I see a lot is basically underpackaged shorts. Two balls shorting together. Two balls shorting together, or like a solder ball, a rogue solder ball, like is underneath there. <laughs> rogue i like that yeah yeah usually according to ipc um 610 or whatever it is uh rogue solder balls are they're unacceptable but they're also a process indicator mm-hmm. that uh that something is is an issue like one little piece of solder in the paste came off and then uh in the oven it's just random location and then it solidifies somewhere on the yeah. board Usually that's from the process indicator on that is your ramp is too high or too fast on your um, solder paste. And your base of your paste was so, your, your paste in your solder paste, I guess that's kind of weird. Basically the, the flux that's binding your solder paste together um, got heated so quickly that it decided to explode little solder balls off of it. That's basically right. what happened. Um, there's there's a lot of different categories that that fits into. Um, I can't remember the name of it right now. Uh, I'm sure we have plenty of people who have taken the IPC class, but uh, it's like solder extensions or or so, like basically if your solder extends outside of the designed pad uh, or the like. I guess if you were to take an envelope and say my component fits within this envelope, if you have any solder extending beyond that, that's a failure, and those balls technically fit within that. Mm-hmm. definition it depends where the balls end up though so well you know most of the time when i see those balls it's like underneath an 0805 component on the sides of it they they just kind of like stick to the side of the component there mm-hmm. and that that ends up being a big problem uh in like high voltage situations because now you've effectively significantly reduced your creepage between pad to pad right almost halved it basically right right probably yeah. less than half right Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. We talked about that like what last week or was it two weeks ago? I don't remember. So. <laughs> it was recent. Yeah, that's actually that actually is a good thing to think about with creepage and is is solder balls in your manufacturing because they do happen. You know, actually, that that's another thing that's important. Um, okay, so if you if you were to remove the solder balls from the underside of a BGA, it just has a bunch of circular pads on it, right? Uh, if you were to measure the distance between the edge of a circular pad to the edge of a circular pad on the bottom of a BGA, um, that's not your clearance distance. Because if you look at the side of a of a of a BGA ball, they they kind of pillow out. Uh, so your creepage from ball to ball is not the same as pad to pad. So you have to take that into account on a BGA. Because the balls extend outside yeah. the width of they, the pad. They poof they out. They bulge, I guess, Yeah, in a way. How often does Macrofab do BGAs? It's probably pretty often, right? Every day, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know how many of that is high-voltage BGA work. I actually don't know about any high-voltage BGAs. I, I'm sure, I mean, I'm they sure got there's some exist. MOSFETs that do fairly high-voltage, but probably not, like, extreme high-voltage. Mm-hmm. Are there are they are there BGA style MOSFETs? Uh huh. Oh yeah. I haven't seen any. Doesn't mean we haven't built any. I just haven't seen any. <laughs> <laughs> um. Okay. So that's inspection, which is basically you have to use an X-ray. To see. Oh, 
we were talking about manufacturing issues. Um, mm. Coplanarity, like during reflow. Um, I haven't seen uh, like our fab having this issue, but I've seen other fabs have this issue a lot um, where they basically have an uneven like zone, usually either during ramp up or during reflow. So it's like basically the zone's too short. Your, your reflow oven's just not big enough. It's, it's not wide enough. Yeah, it's not wide enough or big enough. If, uh, if half the BGA is in liquid and half is not, <laughs> you're, yeah. you're just screwed. <laughs> yeah. Um, though that could be also a process indicator on your your belt is going too slow mm. uh, through the ramp phase. Because basically one end of your BGA is liquidous and the other end is not. Um but usually that means just you need a bigger oven. <laughs> That's usually what you that know, means. <laughs> so I found I found with with ovens okay, so regardless of the oven itself, there there is you can follow the curve of um of a, a solder reflow. Like if if you go look up uh solder paste, they usually give a general reflow curve. And in fact a lot of component data sheets give uh reflow curves themselves. Especially actually BGAs do a lot. Yeah, yeah. And um most ovens, it's not hard to actually hit those curves mm -hmm. in terms of the, the length of time. Most of the time, the um, it's the zone temperature that matters and less the uh, actual uh, speed of the, of the conveyor. Like, in fact, you could probably put a component or put a board in an oven, time it with the oven off and and get your general conveyor speed and then adjust times on the uh, or oh I'm for sorry, sure not times temperatures yeah. on the zones because it's somewhere between like five and a half and eight minutes in the oven i've found with the uh we have a heller uh 1703 at work it's like six and a half minutes is perfect for us yeah. with our sac 305 and it, it, though it depends on the pcb it mm -hmm. depends on th the base of the thermal mass of the of, of the uh assembly you know actually come to think about it that right there is another uh thing to take into consideration if your pcb um design requires a, your manufacturer to change their oven profile you might that may incur some cost uh because that, that may be some engineering time that they have to go and figure out what is good for your board so if you're using a bga and that requires a bunch of extra layers on there that ends up making a bunch of extra thermal class you may have to pay a, an nre for them to go and figure out the oven cost it depends on the manufacturer some manufacturers just eat that cost and some would make you pay for it mm -hmm. um next thing that might be a difference is the tooling between the qfp and bga um, BJs typically have really tiny pace apertures, and so you might need, well, you don't really have to worry about it, but your CM will have to worry about this, um, might need a special stencil in terms of just smaller aperture or thinner, or uh, it might need a expensive coating on it, like Nano Slick, or there's like tons of trade names for that stuff. Um, Electro washing. Yeah, because the smaller aperture will have more... Uh, paste stiction mm -hmm. and so it needs like a special cut or a special coating that allows it to release correctly um now that actually might still be a thing on the qfp depends on pitch width like we were talking about earlier um if it's a really really fine qfp you still need like a high-end stencil but if it's like a normal 0.5 millimeter pitch qfp Maybe your CM's got a paste jetter, and then you don't have to pay anything for a stencil. So paste jetters are are god mode. It's like a cheat cheat. They're hack they're for, just cheat codes yeah. for PCBs. So we've got two of them at MacFab now. It's so awesome. You really? Yeah. Nice. We got the my seven hundred now. Is it even better? Two hundred better than the my five hundred? Sure. <laughs> The big thing about it is it doesn't weigh as much as the old one did. The, the old one was like a giant granite block. Yeah, so so the My series is, is, is a machine made by Micronic. And the My, they all, all their machines start with MY, then a number. So the My 500 was like their first generation pace shutter. Or is it My 400? Five. 500 was the first generation. Okay. And... Um, we have a 700 now as well. So we basically we run both of them in parallel. 
but the 500 was like a four foot by four foot by four foot block of granite <laughs> that the whole machine was like chassis inside. It was, it was really weird how they constructed it. Well, the, okay. So, so the head as it moves has to go so fast and that thing has to be so rigid that they just decided to make it a giant block of stone to, yeah. <laughs> to make sure it doesn't vibrate. Yeah, it doesn't vibrate and move. And it still moves. Like you can feel the head still move inside there. Uh, that's a lot of mass to be like cranking around. Yeah. And so in the 700, it actually looks a lot like the uh, platform tray feeder that we had on the GSM. You know, that, like tower that never freaking worked at all. <laughs> um, that thing was a turd. Yeah, it was so that machine was so bad. Um, it looks like one of those, except painted in the Micronic colors. Um, and so it's just like sheet metal box. And I'm like, there's no way. This thing... So I think what they did is they made the gantry system just way lighter and better, you know, acceleration and, and jerk control. And they don't need that all that mass anymore. You know, it, that reminds me, like way early on in the podcast, probably in the first 50 episodes, we talked to a robotics um, company that that makes robotic arms and 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 the biggest thing was from the mechanical sides of things from from the electrical side you don't have to like you have to consider all of these things but they end up just being numbers from a microcontroller like velocity acceleration stoppage these kinds of things but uh but stiffness really matters a whole lot in in mechanical systems to say like i want to go from position X to position Y and I want to do it this fast and I want to know that I actually got there and I want to stop and be exactly there. I think the very first Micronic was just like, the way we do that is we just make it heavy as hell. You yeah, know? really, really heavy. <laughs> which of course made all the motors bigger, which makes everything else heavier. Yeah. Yeah, everything scales, right? Yeah. I do really like their pick and place machines. Uh, so we have a My 200 and a 300 now. Anyways, um, with the mag drive I, stuff, yeah, because they're they're maglev the head rides on a maglev, mm -hmm. um, uh, and it's a that's like the Y or X gantry, and then the other gantry is the PCB going like this, right? The PCB forth. just moves in and out of the yeah machine, kind of like a uh, Prusa 3D printer, I guess. Yeah, where the mm -hmm. bed moves, and that's that's the other gantry, and then Z is just you know the head going up and down. Um, I really like those, those, I mean, cause they're so smooth. That's the thing is like, you barely even hear those machines run. Those oh, places. it's just, it's just like air moving by. Yeah. It's just a whoosh. Whoosh. Um, and they can, they can move that head fast. Really? That, yeah. That mag, it, that mag, mag drive has a, a lot of torque in it. I was put it that way. Yeah. So I always wondered why they didn't do that for, um, the, uh, pace jetters. It also has a ton of positional accuracy. That's that's the thing that's most impressive. Because like getting a thing to you know hammer some current into a uh, mag drive and get it to move, that's not necessarily the hardest part. It's getting it oh, to move, it. getting it to there fast, and getting it there accurate. They do all of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's expensive. We have a we have a Samsung SM four thirty eight or something, and it it just runs on ball screws, and it's still impressive. So it's like the GSM, except it works. Yeah, except good. <laughs> so so while, while I were do dogging on the GSM, um, GSM was the is a pick-and-place manufacturer. I think it's like actually Universal is the manufacturer. Yeah, that's it. Um, MacFab used to have a Universal GSM like ages ago. like The very first big one you guys got. It's like five, six years. Six years ago at this point, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah, and that was our first big boy pick and place machines, and um, it was a turd. <laughs> I don't know <laughs> yes, how many times was. we rebuilt so many. It, it ran OS2 warp, but that was actually not its problem. <laughs> Surprisingly enough, it just it was just worn out. That machine was just a was just worn out and just. It just everything needed rebuilding on it every so often. You know, I wasn't there. I think you were the only one in the shop when someone came to buy it. Didn't they drop it under their trailer like by a foot? Oh man. Um, <laughs> so yeah, so we moved to our current location. 
and and uh, left the old thing in the old look. We left. We, 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 we at that point we had already pretty much decommissioned the uh, Universal G7. We had some Micronics that we were running. Like basically, we just made an entirely new line at the old fab. We call it old fab, which is actually not the oldest fab, but old fab. Uh, so we left it there at old fab, and this person came to pick it up, and they. I, I think they were trucking it like they trucked it like halfway across the nation, but they came in a car. They had a car trailer that was an open car trailer. Okay. So like it wasn't enclosed or anything like that. Um, and uh, yeah, I like they, he tried to move it on like pallet movers and stuff. And just, I think he dropped it like six inches a couple times, like getting it to the trailer <laughs> And because I wasn't going to help him, I felt kind of douchey. I'm like, dude, I'm not helping you move this thing. <laughs> it um, sounds like a you problem. <laughs> and because uh, it took a, it took a, like a ginormous forklift to move it there. And I'm like, dude, if you don't bring a big forklift, I'm not going to help you move this thing. But he, they just had pallet jacks, pallet jacks, and like, yeah, and shoving it, wheeling it across the floor, that floor, like a hundred feet to the loading dock. And uh, and then he like winched it onto the onto the. <laughs> he just trailer. put a come along on there. No, that, yes, exactly. <laughs> hey, I, I guess you do what you got to do, right? You got to do what you got to do. But I'm like, how much? Um, I on. Oh, I'm reading chat real quick. I broke a hole in the trailer bed, and we had to patch it when he got back. Oh, did you get that Mercury Ink one? <laughs> that GSM. We found the owner. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. Did you ever get that machine running right? <laughs> I, you see, Amazing. I didn't even know. Like, I just remember Parker coming back to the office and be like, it's gone. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you never got it working? Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, apparently it didn't, it didn't end up working. Yeah, it was... We tried... We scrapped it from it. I feel so bad now, I guess. Um... <laughs> I'll put it away. I put it all like Steve and I tried to make that machine run, and actually we did make a lot of boards with it. I, that's the thing; it did a few, work a few thousand, yeah, more than that. Actually, I think we built like ten thousand plus boards to that machine. Um, it just wasn't set up for what we wanted to do, which was high mix, low volume. It was a, it was a high mix, high volume machine. Like you could put so many feeders on that machine. Yeah. Um. It was like 64 feeders per side, and it was a dual gantry. Yeah. It was slow, though. Uh, slow is relative. I mean, it did 10,000 picks in a, an hour. I, I also remember it putting uh, diodes backwards on 700 boards. <laughs> that was actually because <laughs> the person who programmed it programmed it wrong. <laughs> yeah, they programmed it wrong. They knew they programmed it wrong, and they were like, well, we'll just go forward with it. Yeah, that, that was a thing. That was they, a problem. Yeah, <laughs> they was like, the oh, day. we'll just go forward with it. And it's just like, oh, why? Yeah, fix it in post. <laughs> oh. oh, the good old days. Oh, yeah. man. Well, Mercury Inc. one, I. It's unfortunate that it went to the scrap. Pour one yard. out for the GSM. Yeah. There's, there was a lot of late nights of me dialing in the calibration of that machine yeah, without out. actual calibration tools. It was. Pick up an O two O one and put it onto this dot and see how close you get. <laughs> uh, good old days. How did we get onto that? <laughs> um, we're talking we're, about tooling. We were talking about uh, okay, so it's and then we got into the, the pace jetter, and then we talked right, about yeah. machines. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and oh, uh, so we're going. We're just going to keep going down this rabbit hole. So yes. before that, and I think it was before Stephen worked at the fab. We had a a Medell pick in place. Yeah, yeah, that was right before I showed up. And that was a aluminum extrusion pick in place that could barely do 300 picks an hour, which is like the speed a human can do. <laughs> now, the great thing is it's a machine, so it doesn't complain. It doesn't need lunch breaks. So it can just It would working. continuously do 300. It, yeah, it can do 12 hours a day. 300 picks an hour <laughs> and it actually had optical all that good stuff um we built the first 
We built two products on it. We built the Reload Pros, which was our first box build product. And we built like 300 or 400 pin hex mm -hmm. uh, pinball controllers on it. Like Rev 4, I think, of pin hex. Old school. Yeah, really old school. And then, uh, and that was, and, it, <laughs> and our reflow oven was that little three zone gold flow. So we were talking about reflow ovens. You could not reflow a BGA through this one because it was all of a foot and a half long. Oh yeah, all the zones fit in a foot and a half. <laughs> yeah, all the zones fit in a foot and a half. Um, it did. It did QFP because because that board had a TQFP one hundred on it, which was the pick thirty two on it. It did that okay. You yeah, definitely you could tell it was not reflowing it all at once though. Yeah, it was it was having problems. Uh, having a have okay. Talking about conveyor speed, if your if your board needs to go through a foot and a half in six minutes, that conveyor speed is really slow. But if you talk about a big heller like I've got, that's like ten to twelve feet long, and it's got to go through six minutes, that's a hell of a lot faster. Mm -hmm. I remember I remember using that machine more for desoldering components where you'd put you'd put it in you'd let it get into the liquid zone lift the lid really quick and then go in with tweezers and snipe off the bar yeah i showed you that trick oh my god i was like this guy's insane but it worked <laughs> it, works. it works yeah so that was after we got the bravo which was our second reflow oven electrovert yeah, electrovert bravo which was a quote lead free unquote machine yeah, only if you run it at like 120%. Um, and so once we got the Bravo, the gold flow went into hibernation. It just went into the corner. And um, I started using it to desolder S&T parts because it was actually like, oh, you could just pop a board in there. And then when it got into the reflow zone, lift the lid, pull the part <laughs> off, good to go. It actually made it really good when you had to do like a lot of rework. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I think Steven and, and saw for, that. And for multi-legged components, it's great. Yeah, it worked really well for that. It's like using a um, a uh, solder pot to desolder through hole parts, mm -hmm. where you put the you would put the the board over the solder pot, and then it would uh, and there'd be enough jet, I guess, to to liquefy all the legs at once, and you can pull the part off. Mm -hmm. Same concept. The, the safety aspect might be a little lacking. A little bit, yeah. It's yeah. probably why they don't let me in the shop anymore. <laughs> <laughs> they know he's going to do some crazy shit. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. Anything more about BGA versus QFP we need to talk about? I think I think the consensus in general, of course all of this is in general, is that you're likely to save some money on your assembly and your raw PCB cost if you go QFP. BGA doesn't guarantee higher cost, but it it, it trends towards higher cost. Just keep that in mind. Mm -hmm. I view it as even if the QFP costs more, you're going to save it on the tail end. Because one thing we didn't even talk about here is also rework. Um, BGA rework, you basically have to start over like either in reballing the bga or just scrapping the part and then getting a new bga whereas a qfp you can reuse a couple times before you kind of reach how many times you can reflow that part but um that would i'll put it this way is like if you're doing rework and you scrap one bga well there goes all your cost savings for that part so you know, uh, at the same time, if you're developing uh, a board with a BGA, put test points. You'll thank yourself. Like any any signal you have, make sure you can access it somehow. Mm -hmm. Um. So I would say use a QFP. This is my rule, basically. Use a QFP if you have space on your board. Only go leadless when you don't. If you one you don't have any choice because the part only comes in leadless or you have space constraints. Uh, you know, I would make that same argument if it was a QFN versus a QFP. If you can get away oh. with the QFP, do it. Yeah. Oh, 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 for sure. Always that. Um, 
We actually switched. We only have one QFN style part on the pinball controller. We switched it to a leaded SOIC part just so that we can get rid of all leadless on our uh, board. Yeah, makes life way easier. Mm -hmm. Okay, I think that's it for BGA versus QFP. We actually can really just say that was like a leaded versus non-leaded service mount component talk too. I guess so, yeah. I mean, we did specifically talk about BGAs, but yeah, it, that, that does extend to kind of those two. Yeah, yeah. Um, so what came out of this discussion on Slack was how to use the MacFab platform to predict pricing. Right, because like even even with everything Parker and I just said, it still might make sense financially to go with the more expensive route depending on the part cost. Mm -hmm. And Chris Carter did a kind of like a quick write-up on the Slack channel of like how to do this with the MacFab platform like quickly. And this actually is probably something you should do for almost any kind of board you're designing, at least for production or, or it's a product that you're developing. Because this is the thing. If it does X, Y, and Z, what it needs, what the product needs to do, what's the next most important thing? Per unit cost. And the earlier you can get that per unit cost to your, your the product designer or, or your boss at work or whatever, the, the better they're going to be at, at planning everything out. As soon as the bean counters stop bugging you, you're doing it right. Yes. And so how to get the, how to get the bean counters off your back the fastest. <laughs> so most time you just do like napkin math because you don't know everything that your PCB might need at this point, like capacitors and resistors and passives and that kind of stuff. But you know, like, oh, I'm probably going to use this microcontroller. I need like eight MOSFETs. It's got it's got these couple special LEDs, maybe, and it's got a analog to digital converter front end with some uh, IC protection. So you can build up a rough build materials just like that. Sure, it might be a couple dollars high or a couple dollars low, but it's going to be roughly where you need it to be. It's a good and, shotgun shot at the target. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then you got to draw up a board outline that you need. What's the maximum that your board can be? And usually you actually do have a good idea of what size that is. Cause a lot of times you're designing for an enclosure or, um, or you think you're, or like the end product needs to only be this big. And so your PCB is dictated by that size. Um, so you can just draw a rectangle. That's that dimension and just, throw all your parts in there and then you can throw it up onto the MacFab platform and it will quote it out for you. And this is where you can go in and go, Oh, well, I want to see the difference between that QFP and BGA. And all you got to do is just change what that build material item is on, on the build material page. And it will just, right, you don't even the... have to re-upload a new no. build material. Yeah. You just got to search for the new part, select it, and then see what the price difference is. And so it'll show you the labor and, the price difference between the components and then for all the quantities you want, you know, you want to make a million of them. Sure. So, so kind of to boil it down, what you're doing is you're just adding a dummy board that has an outline. You're throwing up a, a bill of materials that isn't necessarily 100% the end product, but it has all the, the major points on it. And then the, the macrofab system will give you a ballpark price of your board is this big. Your bill of materials has these parts on it. And uh, it'll give you ideas based on those, um, uh, the characteristics of the parts in the board. Correct. And then you can also like just change like the layer counts. So you're like, oh, the BGA is going to require a six layer board versus the QFP, which is four layer. And you can just do that change there too. You know, okay, I, here's the thing. I think that's actually a tool that a lot of people don't know about. And I'm not just trying to sell Macrofab here. Um, that is a pretty good way. Like, let's say you have an idea for this new Whizbang product and you need to go and create your initial uh, findings document uh, to to provide to the accountants or whoever, your boss or whatever. This is a really great, great way to very quickly get an idea of the assembly cost, the bill of materials, cost, like everything. You can get uh, your initial findings and, and you can be 10 steps ahead by saying like, look, I've already have like generally accurate pricing on this so i can tell you before we've even put pen to paper on a design this is how much i think it's going to cost mm -hmm. 
Um, and, think- and, and like you said there, Parker, you can change the characteristics about it and say like, oh, l- let's say we ha- we're running a four-layer board and we find out that we need to go BGA and that needs to go from four to eight layers. You could already have that information in your, your presentation. Say like, we know that in general it's going to be a X percent increase. Yep. I did write an article about this a long time ago. I did do a quick Google search and I couldn't find it. So it's somewhere <laughs> out there on the MacFab blog so i'll have to find it but it's about how to do this in eagle um so you could probably expand that to other eda tools but um yeah i mean i use it all the time basically like when i did the pinball controller i basically like okay the board needs is going to be like 10 by 5 it was my goal i ended up with 11 by 5 that's why i had to cheat a little bit um but yeah, it's uh, I just came out with I went ten by five and I just threw all the parts in the middle of the board, didn't even route anything, and just uploaded that, and was able to get. I think I was within four dollars of my estimate. <laughs> so, well, in terms of a percent, how much was that? It was probably pretty close, right? Uh, that was would be three percent. Okay, yeah. So if you, uh, I think how awesome that would be if before if you're giving a presentation on new product development to your boss and you can be within 3% of the target price like that's incredible right yeah, as eight opposed to just before like you designed estimates. it yeah, yeah right before you've like before you've even opened a new schematic uh and, and and so here's the thing i could i can tell you from my experience there's two major factors in in PCB assembly that are going to sort of um adjust the price on your board that is square area of of your board and then uh your pin count and that would be you know how like what's the total number of smd pins so like you know a resistor is going to have two and soic eight is going to have eight i I tally those all up the more pins you have the more it's going to cost to assemble and the more square area the more the board's going to cost so those are sort of like your if you're thinking of like the very top level things uh of what Affect costs on a PCB. Those are those are some of the big ones. Mm-hmm. A- a- anywhere, not just MacFab. I know some places they they will go all the way down to adding assembly cost per component. I think that that ends up being a little um, onerous in, in a way. Yeah, it depends on uh, basically how good their process is. For pricing, so like if they're doing, if you're, if you are doing a BGA and they're not accustomed to doing BGAs, they will usually have a price adder like that on their, on their, uh, tooling or something like that. Mm-hmm. Or, but if you fit within their that CM's Goldilocks zone of what they build, they can probably have a more uh, formula-driven way of pricing it out. You know, okay, so one of the big things where I think Macrofab kind of knocks it out of the park with this isn't that you get an instantaneous price, because a lot of places will give you an instantaneous price. It's the fact that Macrofab allows you to choose your quantity, and you can see that pricing for nearly any quantity. I mean, if you if you went online to Macrofab and you uploaded a board and you were like, I'm going to make 15 million of these, uh, you know, I don't. I personally don't know, but I, I doubt that the price would be exactly what Macrofab would want. Uh, you'd probably have to talk to somebody if you're talking about quantity. I think over yeah, a certain large. quantity, they're like, you need to talk to us. Yeah, yeah, please, please call <laughs> us, right? But but if you're talking about like you want to look at the difference between five, one hundred, and five hundred, those numbers are going to be accurate. Mm-hmm. I actually, I think it goes up to a couple thousand before it starts to be like, uh. You, I hate you're, to use ed, this word. you're edge casing the algorithm if you yeah up at a I, I hate to say it, but pricing uh um ambiguous is my that's the wrong <laughs> word but um but yeah because it because oh, at that volume a penny matters or like an extra step in the process matters actually at that point talking to someone you're probably gonna get a better price than what the website tells you um so having run my own stuff kind of like as a, I don't run them as like Parker at MacFab.com and in the platform, I run it as like my own stuff. 
so it's like secret shopper, I guess, in quotes. Um, yeah, it, it, when you get to a certain volume, uh, contact for sure. Yeah, yeah. The but, platform but, but, tells you that's the thing. The platform will say, "Oh, you you need to contact us." Right. Right. So. Man, I wish I could find that article. I'll find it later. Uh, it's 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 interesting because the uh, the question. I think the way that you had described in our Slack channel of you can just upload a dummy board and change the bill of materials. I don't think that's necessarily exactly obvious from the get go. It is not. Uh, actually, I was, that is such a useful tool. Yeah, I actually was talking to uh, Church today about this, and yeah. I'm like, man, if we just had a front end calculator. I think that would help people out a lot because technically that's what you're building for yourself is a calculator with a dummy board. You know, this is, this is way far fetched. I really, really, really wish that I could have a calculator like Macrofab built into my EDA tool such that I make decisions in my EDA tool. And it's like, Oh, your price just went up because you made that decision. Now you, you chose that BGA. Yeah, right. <laughs> oh, you want a one mil via? Well, your boards are gonna, you know, go up hundred X in cost. <laughs> Is that even possible? That's no, it's not. Via. That's why. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I think three mil vias are are, are laser drills, right? These are some of the smallest ones. Actually, I so I asked some PCB manufacturers about that, like what they consider laser drills, and most. I'd say most, most PCB, the, the ones that I've talked to, majority of them have, dr will machine that still. A three mil hole? Yeah, a three mil hole drill. Well, four mil, I think it's the smallest I was talking to him too. Okay. Four mil, they will still, some of them will laser them, but most of them nowadays have drills. Their drill machines are accurate enough to hit that with a four mil drill. Ugh. And it's, it's cheaper, so. You know, uh, so the so, uh, slight side note, the CNC machine that I use at work, we actually just got a second one in today. I'm super stoked. Uh, so we've, we've got, I've got a killer machine shop at work. Um, it's, it's kind of a, a fl fun playground. But I learned not that long ago that this machine has become a standard in two industries, the PCB industry for uh, drilling um, PCBs mainly because it's so fast. It it has a sixty thousand RPM head, which helps out a lot when doing micro drilling because uh, you can plunge faster. But it's also uh, really used in the uh, um, dental industry for machining dental implants. I'm just things. actually imagining you're you're gonna mount your head in a vice tomorrow <laughs> and get some fillings drilled out. I think they have like <laughs> special vices for like dental implant vices and, and trunnions and stuff like that. Um, they actually have uh, th this company, they, they, they make our version and like, I don't know, six hundred of their CNC versions, but they, they have a specific one. That's like a dentist CNC. Hmm. Um, so I don't know. The industry's big enough, I guess, but, but yeah, no, um, I've seen a bunch of PCB manufacturers use this CNC, mainly just because it has the, the the spindle speed is so unbelievably fast and it has enough tool space that it can carry a bunch of different size of bits and it can drill really small holes with that. And you just use it to engrave aluminum. <laughs> All day, every day. It does look great though. So it, it I'm not going to knock it. Okay. So I've been asked so many times, um, why don't you laser? Uh, Cause Lasering is so much faster than engraving, right? Uh, you could just get, you know, the the black laser uh, coated mm -hmm. material and then just blast it on. Uh, a handful of reasons are, are, are behind that. One, you still have to machine a lasered item. Like you, yeah, you still got to cut all the holes out for. Still the, have to cut all the holes, right? For the so instruments, yeah. People, people are always like, "Why don't you just laser the holes?" Well, okay, that's a completely different laser. You can't laser and laser mark on the same thing easily. You can do it. You can't do it easily. And okay, so a laser machine that makes something look good is different than a laser machine that cuts holes. Like yes. those are two different things, and they're also two very different sizes yep. uh, of machine. So. 
we opted to go with a unique system that allows us to both engrave and cut all of our holes in one process. So we put a sheet of aluminum down, we press go, we leave for the night, come back in the morning, and there's a whole army of uh, parts done, and we never have to worry about alignment of anything. That was about to say is if you have to switch tools between, like, say you were, let's say you you had to use two lasers, or let's say a laser and a CNC, yeah, to cut the holes and then do your engraving. How often are you gonna have to scrap because one's not aligned correctly? Yeah, I mean the thing about our CNC, there's never been okay. If there's an alignment issue, it's because we designed it wrong. Yes. Like, you have to build misalignment into our stuff. Uh, so the only time we have ever scrapped material, which it happens, but the only time is when bit's dull. That's it. And then you just go, oh, okay, well, scrap those, put a new bit in, and press go. So I, I'm, I'm kind of stoked because, uh, yeah, we got our second – our production has grown enough that, like, our the, the one we already have is just not keeping up with production. So – uh, we got another machine. That's good. Which, uh, yeah, it's an excellent problem to have. Yeah, good problem Man, to okay, have. so I had to deal with some riggers this morning because we don't have a dock high at, at our they, they, location. They drop it six inches over and over and over again? No, these guys were magical. Okay, I've used these guys three times now. <laughs> this This rigging company is so awesome. Okay, so first of all, what's great is they allowed us to ship our machine to their location. Uh, and they received the machine. They put it on a truck. They drive it to our location with a forklift and offload it. Now, of course, you have to pay a premium for all of this. But if you don't have a dock high uh, to offload stuff, like that's what it costs. I watched these guys spin a 12-foot forklift in a 6-foot room. I don't know how they do it. These guys are so good. Like... <laughs> Okay, so we have like in our warehouse, we have other machines and we have tables and we have all this other stuff. I I spent all day yesterday cleaning up our warehouse and like moving things around, but it was still like, man, if they have a big forklift, this is going to be hard to get around. They can dance with a forklift. These guys are amazing. Like, and and they've got okay, they've got a twenty five hundred pound CNC on the end of this forklift, and they're just swinging around like waltzing with this thing. Like, it was impressive. I have to say that. Oh, I will man. use these guys in the future when I buy more machines for sure. Yeah. Um, I just remember, it reminds me when we were unloading the Micronics. Yeah, or, or my 500 <laughs> and the my bed. 200. No, from a tow truck. <laughs> so we're not going to get to the we, last topic today because we're going to have this story. We've told this story like four times. I love have it. Have we? Oh, I'm yeah. I'm going to tell it yeah. again because I love this story. Good. It's still good. It's still good. So we, we, we ordered uh, a Micronic. 200 and a Micronic 500, the Pace Jetter, um, from, I think that came from Sweden, right? Yeah. Uh-huh. So they show up at, at, at downtown Houston on a, on a, uh, on a flatbed, like, semi-truck. It was like an air ride truck. Yeah. But open, like, but they're in crates, so it's like these two ginormous crates on the back of the semi-truck. And the guy's like, okay, how are you going to get them off? And we're like, uh, no one thought <laughs> no. farther ahead than them showing up on the side of the road. Yeah. And so fortunate enough, one of our, our neighbors is a, uh, it's a brewery and they've got forklifts. And so we got one of those guys to come over with like their biggest forklift. And we're actually able to pluck them off the trailer, the, the semi-truck truck. Uh, trailer just fine um and so that way you know signed it signed for it and driver drove away but now we got two ginormous crates on the side of the road in downtown houston <laughs> and we're like okay we need to get these they can't stay outside overnight They'll, yeah the, the the driver's like later <laughs> someone will try to steal them yeah. downtown houston so we got to figure out it. how to get these inside and it's like three o'clock at this point and so we try to, and we're like, oh, just use the, the forklift. Well, the problem is lifting them up, they would not fit. The crates were so wide, they would not go through the dock high section. Also, also there was a ramp. Uh, so you couldn't just pick it up on a forklift and drive it in. Well, that was the thing. Is like, well, we can just drive it up the ramp. You can't drive it up the ramp because it's so big that if you lift it up to try to go through the ramp, the forks would hit the ramp as you were driving up and 
and so like okay how do we get so basically what we end up doing is we got a flatbed tow truck to show up <laughs> loaded the crates onto that and had the tow truck driver back into the shop up the ramp and then partially unload the ramp so it was tip, they tipped yeah, it the... tipped it it tipped the ramp so, so, it so was this level. car's at like a what a 20 degree angle on a ramp yeah. and then flatten out the tow truck bed. yeah the, the bed and flatten that thing out to about roughly level and then we were able to pick it off with the uh with the, with fork- the uh, forklift and then yeah but the forklift down. had to raise to like three quarters maximum height yeah with a two hundred thousand dollar machine yeah there. like more than enough that you could easily walk underneath the forks with this, like way higher than you should lift a machine like this. Yeah, exactly. And of course it's like wobbling a bit. <laughs> and we're like, yeah. well, the future of MacFab is right here. <laughs> Everyone's just pinching real hard. Yeah. I think that was the last time we ever did a sketchy move. Cause after that, we, we just hired riggers. Well, I, I, I when we bought the, uh, the new oven, at uh, at the new shop, I I rented a forklift, but we had a guy who actually knew how to drive a forklift. Yeah, you rented a no forklift, problem. and but you also rented a forklift that was big enough to ca- easily carry. <laughs> yeah, right. Like it got the real thing. Yeah, which that, that that was fun because we were supposed to have the forklift for a day and a half, and they left it at the shop for like a week and a half. Yeah, they left so it we for all a got to joyride in the back part. Um, so <laughs> I think I, I think we talked about this story before too, uh, but we were doing donuts in the back parking lot <laughs> when it was raining with that big that forklift was huge it that was must, a beefy forklift yeah i think you i think you basically got the biggest forklift they would let us rent to move that oven because that oven is big too the biggest thing was was that it, like okay to get the long enough force uh, hopefully no one that insures us is listening to this podcast right now no, well, I mean, this was this was a while ago as well. Uh, statue what, limitations. In in order to get long enough forks <laughs> to reach the entire crate length, you had to get. Uh, so the 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 oven weighed something in the in the region of like twenty five hundred to three thousand pounds, but yeah, I had to heavy. get like a six thousand pound forklift <laughs> yeah. just to get long enough forks on it. So it was like that way was overkill. Used. It was a yeah. beefy forklift. Well, yeah, because oh man, we used when we got the Micronics off that tow truck we had to use fork extensions and those are those are first of all like you talk about getting insurance being pissed off but you can't use those no so i think i think basically we, what we took learning from that is what we applied to when we got the oven because the oven went piece of cake no problem no matter what so you know okay so you'd be surprised um renting a forklift is not expensive no it's not on top of that like we don't we've never done anything dangerous with them but they don't ask a lot of questions it's not like renting a car like when you rent a car like there's a lot more questions they ask than a forklift you basically with a forklift place you call them up and be like hey i want a forklift they're like cool it's this much money yeah you know? this much money <laughs> like, and then, a, well, where, okay. where do we need to drop it off at right, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah actually all heavy equipments like because i had to rent a uh small like like a bobcat mm-hmm. which is like a little little uh front end loader thing front end loader yeah it was like i called him up and like what date and i'm like and here's my credit card number and that was and it showed up and i'm like it's so it's, i don't know it's so weird it doesn't seem like it should be that easy right no and you're right because like renting a car is like they need everything in your like social security number and all this other stuff just to like rent a car that you like you drive every day kind of weird buddy of mine visited um denver and uh apparently renting cars is so unbelievably expensive right now i i haven't tried to do he it went, but, but... he rented a bobcat and drove it no, to your house he rented a truck from home depot and and that was for like cheaper? a week and just use that and it was cheaper <laughs> it was like what 19 dollars a day yeah yeah, actually, so, yeah, yeah that's, it was, that's it pretty was just, inexpensive it's really inexpensive yeah yeah apparently you uh, like if you rent a u-haul on a vacation like go to the location uh like fly out there rent a u-haul that's cheaper than running a car <laughs> i i i i would uh i could believe that ah, another nostalgia cast yeah so that was the Mac Five Engineering Podcast. We were your hosts, Parker Dillman. And Stephen Craig. Later, everyone. Take it easy. I hope we didn't our long term listeners enjoyed us regaling those stories we've told many of many of times.
we have to indoctrinate all the new listeners. Oh, that, that's true. We need to come up with more stories. Well, maybe without the insurance people knowing. 